We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you want to open your Bible there. We're going to have a lot of verses today. Uh, if you have the printed message, the verses are there in the printed uh, booklet, and you can follow along with the message there. They're also on the church website, and you can track with the um, message there if you'd like. And pray for me for next week. Boy, that's a tough passage, and I'm going to be dealing with 12 verses next week in chapter 2, and uh, the exegetical problems there are enormous, so I've been struggling with it and trying to spend extra time on that. But this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, to this end also, We pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray the Lord's Prayer? And I'm not asking, do you recite it verbatim? Uh, What I'm asking is, do you use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for the way you pray? I think that when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, and he responded with what we now call the Lord's Prayer, probably better called the disciples' prayer because it was for them, Uh, I believe that he was not giving them uh, something to just recite mindlessly, like, now I lay me down to sleep. Uh, But rather, he was showing them the pattern, the outline of how we should pray. Uh, It's divided into two sections. First, pray to the Father about the Father's glory and purpose. And then secondly... Pray to the Father about our needs. Uh, It begins, I'm in the Luke rendering in Luke 11, 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And so he's asking there that, that, telling us to ask there, that God would be reverenced, that he would be glorified, and for his rule to be uh, extended as he says, your kingdom come that his rule would be extended through evangelism and discipleship. So there you've got the entire work of God around the world, that he would be glorified and exalted as people come to Christ and as people display Christ-likeness in their lives. And then the second half in verses 3 and 4 of Luke 11, give us each day our daily bread And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That breaks down into our physical needs, our uh, relational needs, and our spiritual needs. And so it's an overall pattern. But I have a hunch if we could listen in on each of our prayers, we often flip-flop the order. And we come first with our needs, and then maybe we might get around eventually, oh yeah, yeah, and please bless the missionaries, and we pray for God's work around the world. But uh, 
Jesus instructed us to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to us. And so I believe that the priority in our prayers, again, should be on God's glory, God's kingdom, his work, and then, sure, bring our needs. He encourages us to do that. And that is Paul's focus when he prays for these new converts in Thessalonica. Keep in mind, they're going through severe persecution. And uh, Paul's prayer in our text, I think, gives us a pattern for our prayers as we pray for others. But also, uh, there's a simple lesson here on how to serve the Lord so that his kingdom and glory are our priority. He's saying to us, first of all, serve the Lord prayerfully. Uh, Serve the Lord out of godly character. Serve the Lord joyfully in his power and serve the Lord for his glory. And I might add for his, uh, according to his grace. Now, Paul is assuming something here that I fear that many modern Christians have forgotten. He is assuming that every believer is serving the Lord in some way. Uh, That if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that he's given you a spiritual gift and that there is no member of the body of Christ that is useless, just as we need all our body parts and we are uh, only healthy as each part is working, even so we need all the members of the body of Christ to serve. I've told you before, however, about something that all pastors will nod in agreement if you mention it. It's called the 80-20 rule. And that is, most pastors know that in every church, um, 80% of the work that gets done is done by 20% of the people who are overworked. And that 80% of the people show up and come to church and leave, and they are not involved in serving the church in any way. Now, I'm going to optimistically join Paul this morning in assuming that if you know Christ, you're serving Christ, and you want to know how to serve him better. I'm going to hope that's true of every single one of you, and that this message then will help equip you for whatever ministry God has given to you. There are four simple lessons here that I just want to bring out. The first one is serve the Lord prayerfully. Uh, Verse 11 again, to this end also we pray for you always. And prayer has to permeate everything we do for the Lord. By we, I think Paul means Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the ones he mentions in verse 1. And that they prayed always, remember in Chapter 5, verse 17, he tells us to pray always. It doesn't mean 24-7 without a break. It means often and repeatedly, uh, always keeping coming back to prayer. And they prayed always because they knew that the Thessalonians were always needy, as, of course, we all are. And so uh, Paul here just, again, emphasizes prayer if you go back over First and Second Thessalonians, you discover that there is a tremendous emphasis on prayer in these two short letters. For example, First Thessalonians 1-2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you 
in our prayers. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And then First Thessalonians, the reference should be uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Paul says, for what thanks can we render to God? And notice that repeated emphasis, too, on prayer being thanksgiving. What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we might see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then the verse I mentioned, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Then in verse 23 of chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's a a prayer. Uh, Verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, Brethren, pray for us. Then the next reference should read Second Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Then jumping down to our text, to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13 of chapter 2, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then verse 16 of chapter 2, Again, this is a prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, brethren, finally brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. And then verse 5 of chapter 3, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And then he ends the letter in chapter 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I wanted to read all of those just to give you the impact that prayer is just in the warp and woof of these two short letters. It's all through them. 
And so it shows us again uh, the importance of prayer. I think it's also significant that he's writing to a group of brand new Christians who are going through severe persecution. And never once do you read, I pray that you will be delivered from your persecution. Isn't that significant? Because that's the first thing we would pray. Oh, you're in persecution. We'll pray that you'll get out of it. Paul doesn't pray that. He prays rather that they will grow in godliness and that God's kingdom will be furthered and his glory be furthered through their perseverance in the midst of all their persecution. Now, in our text, something else is interesting. Paul is praying for God to do what God has promised to do. He knew that God would do it. Did you catch that? He knows that God is going to do this, and so he prays that God will do it. For example, he, he, he's praying that God will be glorified in these believers when Jesus returns. That's the, the gist of verse 12. Uh, in Philippians 1.6, Paul said this, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul knew God is going to finish what God started, and so he prays that God will finish what God started. Um, and you go, well, why does he do that? Well, I think that's just the mystery of prayer. It's the interaction between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. You know, people will sometimes say, well, why pray if God predestined everything? Well, the answer, of course, is because God tells us to pray. Um, but people will say sometimes, well, why witness if God has chosen who's going to be saved? And the answer is because God saves them through our witness. Uh, and God tells us to tell them about. But you think about it in the Lord's Prayer. Why pray your kingdom come? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that going to happen? You know it's going to happen. When Jesus Christ comes back, his kingdom will come. And it's a certain done deal. And his will will be done. Uh, but he tells us, pray for it. Pray for it. You see that all through scripture. And uh, it's not my notes, but in Daniel 9. Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says there's 70 years predicted for Jerusalem's captivity. And Daniel comes undone. I mean, he, he fasts and he prays. And Daniel chapter 9 is his prayer. God, 70 years are up. Would you do what you promised to do? Why did he do that? Well, because God works through our prayers. And, and so, you know, you say, well, the Lord promised I will build my church. Yeah? Do you pray that? Lord, build your church. Build your church. That's how he builds his church, as is his people are faithful to pray that he will build his church. And, and so when we serve him, whatever you're doing, it's got to be bathed in prayer. Everything in prayer. Uh, all that we do for the Lord. Secondly, Paul says here, serve the Lord out of godly character. That's in verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always that, our God, uh, there's a typo there in the notes, will count you worthy of your calling. Our God will count you worthy of your calling. Now, when he says to this end, he may be referring back to verse 5, where Paul said that the 
persecution that these dear saints were enduring was so that God would consider them worthy of the kingdom. Or it may just refer to the verse right before in verse 10 uh, to the goal that the Lord would be glorified in them at his coming. But either way, I think Leon Morris uh, is correct when he says the meaning is that they may so live between this moment and the judgment that God will then be able to pronounce them worthy of the calling wherewith he called them. Or you might say, again, Paul is just praying what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, where he he said that we want to be able at the judgment to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want the Lord to give us his commendation when we stand before him. Now, it's important to keep in mind that being counted worthy of the calling with which we're called depends on being called. In other words, we, we don't labor to be worthy so we will experience God's salvation, but rather because we have experienced his salvation. That is essential to understand. Um, salvation comes first, then we walk worthily of the calling with which we were called. And this is a theme all through Paul's writings. I, again, I want to show you some of the scriptures uh, just to show you how frequent this is. Philippians one twenty seven, Paul says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul commands, Therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, a similar idea. For this reason also... Since the day we heard of it, Paul had not yet visited this church, but he heard about it. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then... In the first uh, letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul uh, reminded them that he had encouraged and exhorted them as a loving father, and then he adds, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, all those verses might make you think, oh, wow, I can't serve the Lord unless I'm perfect. That's not the point of the verses at all. If you had to be perfect, none of us would be serving the Lord because we aren't. Uh, rather, it, it's getting at this. Are you, are you living as best you know in obedience to Christ and seeking to, to glorify him? That's the thrust of it. Um, there are believers and they're living a double life. They're, they're putting on a good front at church. But then there's secret sins that they're engaging in, 
Don't serve the Lord if that describes you. Deal with your sin and then serve the Lord. The name of Christ gets dragged through the mud every once in a while when some well-known preacher who's been preaching against something gets exposed that he's living a double life, going to prostitutes or something like that on the side. And that's just Satan's heyday to destroy the name of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is our Christian service should flow out of a a worthy walk, that we're walking daily with Christ, that we're seeking to glorify him, seeking to obey his word, and then our lives are the basis for our service, our ministry. So first of all, service needs to be bathed in prayer. Secondly, it flows out of this worthy walk. Thirdly, serve the Lord joyfully. In his power, first joyfully, verse 11, he prays that God will fulfill every desire for goodness. Or if you have an ESV, it says every resolve for good, but those resolves come from inner desire. Uh, The Greek scholar J.B. Lightfoot translates it uh, that he'll fulfill every delight in well-doing. So... Serving the Lord, in other words, comes out of the desire to do it. It's not a duty that you go, okay, i got to do this for the Lord. I guess I'll do it. No, it's not that. It's I get to do this for the Lord. It it should be a desire, a, a joy to be able to serve the Lord somehow. You're not doing it grudgingly. You're not doing it out of guilt. You're not doing it even though you'd rather be doing something else. It's like, this is wonderful. I get to serve the Lord. Uh, Psalm 100 and verse 2 puts it this way, serve the Lord with gladness, with gladness. You know, when God saves you, I believe he puts desires in your heart to serve him for goodness, for doing good deeds, for godly character. Uh, Psalm 37, 4 is one maybe you're familiar with. It says, delight yourself in the Lord And he will give you the desires of your heart. And often the way he gives you the desires of your heart is he puts his desires in your heart and then your desires and his are one and the same. And so you're serving him out of this desire that he has given you in the first place. Sometimes people will ask, where should I serve God? And part of the answer to that is, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy doing? Do it for the Lord. You know, if you enjoy doing it and it brings you a lot of satisfaction and generally people say, wow, that really ministered to me. That's what you ought to be doing. It's not like you say, I really enjoy doing this. And God says, fine, now you're not going to do that. Do something you hate. It's It's not the way God works. He works through the desires that he gives us. Now, That's not to say it's going to be easy. Uh, Being a pastor is not easy. You you get criticized unfairly sometimes. Sometimes it's just plain hard work. Um, Sometimes there's part of your service that you do that's just not your favorite thing, but you do it anyway. So it's not like it's all a piece of cake. I'm not implying that. But I am saying generally when you're done, even if you're tired, 
And even if you got blasted, you say, you know, that, that was for you, Lord. And it was a joy to be able to offer that up to you. And uh, you, you do it out of desire, out of joy. Uh, the second part, you do it in his power. You serve the Lord in his power. In verse 11, Paul prays that God will fulfill the work of faith with power. Genuine faith results in works. But those works um, rely on God because they are a work of faith. Faith depends on God. And so you're working hard, but you're relying on the Lord, and you work together. And you see that interplay between our labor and God's power again in a lot of places in Paul's letters. Uh, you're familiar probably with Philippians 2, 12 and 13 that says, So then, my beloved brethren... Just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's at work in you, so you work it out. Or Colossians 1.29, for this purpose, Paul says, I also labor, striving, there's a That's a word, it means agonizing, according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Paul is working hard, he's striving, but he's doing it according to God's power that works in and through him. Or another one, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, For by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. He's referring to the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So there's this interplay between I work hard, God works in me. God works in me, I work hard. They they tie in together. And so uh, we have to uh, do it, but do it by his power. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I'd serve the Lord, but I really, really feel inadequate to do it. And depending on what the service is, Granted, you might need some training. If you're going to teach the Bible, for example, it's helpful to have some training in how to study the Bible, how to interpret it, apply it, all of those things, and how to communicate it well. Or if you're going to go out and share your faith and work in evangelism, it's really helpful to get some basic training in how to do that. Um, But I don't care how much training you get, you still have to rely on the Lord. And uh, it's amazing that the Apostle Paul, and he's talking in the context of preaching the gospel, he says, will you pray for me that God will give me boldness and clarity? Hello, this is Paul, (laughs) you know. This is Paul, one of the boldest guys that you see in the Bible. And he says, please pray for me that I'll be bold. And this is Paul who wrote the book of Romans saying, Pray for me that I'll make the gospel clear. Um, he relied on the Lord. I, I go back often to 2 Corinthians 2.16 where Paul says, And who is adequate for these things? He's talking about the gospel. Who is adequate for these things? The implied answer, no one. And then a few verses later, 2 Corinthians 3.5, he says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves, To consider anything is coming from ourselves, but 
Our adequacy is from God. I can't help but remember and think about that it was 40 years ago this month that I began as a pastor. About two weeks from now, is third week in February was when I began as a pastor. I was just shy of my 29th birthday. You can do the math. Yes, I'm old now. And uh, to say that I felt inadequate about doing it is a gross understatement. I had never taught the Bible consecutively, verse by verse, more than a couple of short Sunday school series I had done, you know, adult Sunday school classes. I had never preached like that, and I honestly thought, I'm going to run out of gas real quick, you know. It's just not going to happen here that I can sustain this. And so I told the Lord, I'll I'll try it for three years, and we'll see where we're at, Lord. And by His grace alone, here I am almost 40 years later, And by his grace, uh, I haven't gotten fired yet. Maybe a few people have wished that. But so far, people have put up with me. And, you know, there's not a week that goes by, even though I've done this for 40 years, that I just don't feel overwhelmed with inadequacy and say, man, I don't know how to teach this passage. And I don't understand this. And what am I supposed to do? And I feel like I'm... Failing, that song we sang about walking on the water, that's what I feel, is if I look at the waves, I'm going under. Lord, you've got to carry me every week. And so that's the idea here, I believe, is that we, if if you feel inadequate, you may need to get some training, but the training isn't going to solve it. You're going to feel inadequate the rest of your life. You should. And, in fact, if you feel adequate, you're probably not ready to serve. Your adequacy is trusting in the Lord and letting him work through you. So Paul's saying, first of all, serve the Lord prayerfully, and that ties into what I've just been saying. Serve him out of godly character. Serve him joyfully in his power. And then the final lesson here is serve the Lord for his glory and according to his grace First is glory in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. And that's looking at the motive. Why do we serve the Lord? The aim of knowing and serving the Lord is to glorify the Lord. And to glorify the Lord means that you make the Lord look good as he really is. We're always going to fall short on that, but to his the degree possible, Lord, would you look good through what I'm doing so that people look through me like through a window and they see you. They see your glory. They see your goodness and your character. And his name, that's what that is, is it's all the Lord's attributes and the Lord's character. Um, Peter is writing about our service for the Lord in First Peter four ten and 11, where he says, As each one, don't miss that, that includes you, each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he breaks the gifts down into two broad categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves 
is to do so as one who's serving in the strength which God supplies, very similar to our text here, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so the aim of Paul's prayer in our text is, again, Leon Morris explains it well. He says, it's that the Thessalonians will be such a bright and shining testimony to the reality of their salvation that the Savior will be seen to be the wonderful being he is. That's the idea. When you serve him, you're the window. Jesus is to shine through it. I've served now as pastor these many decades, and I have seen that there are many other reasons people serve the Lord than to glorify him. Some serve the Lord because they want affirmation from others. They want to get the strokes, you know. It feels good when people give you acclaim. Some serve out of guilt. Some are trying to earn acceptance with the Lord. And. <clears throat> interesting experience years ago in California. We lived on the mountains, and it snowed up there like it does here. But like here, you could drive off the rim and be down in San Bernardino in a short time, and it rarely snowed there. And I had done some premarital counseling with a couple. They wanted me to conduct the wedding, but they were afraid it was going to snow would mess up their wedding. It was during the snowy season. And so they picked a church in San Bernardino where they knew it wouldn't snow. The catch was that church had a policy that their pastor had to have a part in the service if the wedding was there. And so we went down there, and before the wedding, I went into the pastor's office just to get acquainted a little bit and explain what was going to go on in the ceremony and what his part was. And uh, he lit up a cigarette, and I noticed that his ashtray was overflowing with cigarette butts. And I glanced at the diploma that was on the wall from the seminary he had attended and noticed that it was fairly recent, and the guy was, you know, middle age. And so I just said, oh, um, you know, you just graduated from seminary. Is this a, a second career for you? And he said, yes. And so I followed that up by saying, well, well what led you into the ministry? And his face got very taut, and he said, because I had to live with myself. And I I didn't know what to say. Because you had to live with yourself? Apparently, guilt had driven him into the ministry, and he thought that by, you know, vowing to be a minister, he was somehow going to atone for his sins. And then I should have thought, oh, boy, we're in for it. So we get into the wedding ceremony. And I'm doing a little, you know, wedding message, as we always do in the middle of a wedding. And uh, a girl sitting down about here snaps a flash photo. I didn't think anything of it until he said, he was standing on the platform, just a minute. And I kind of looked over. He said, this is worship, and we do not take pictures in worship. You know, and he reams her out in front of the whole church. And the wedding couple, I'm looking down at them, and their eyes are about this big. as They're going, oh, man, this guy just ruined our wedding. But I think it's safe to say that man was serving the Lord for the wrong reason. I'm not sure that he even knew the Lord. But people serve for all kinds of reasons, and uh, we have to examine our motive. 
Paul says that we, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we have the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the, the glory might not be of us, but of God. So we're all a bunch of earthen vessels. But here's the amazing thing in our text, that the name of the Lord would be glorified in you, and then he adds, and you in him. Isn't that remarkable? Even though we're earthen vessels... Paul prays that God would be glorified in us. Okay, I got that part. And then you and him. We're going to share in his glory. And that won't happen, of course, till Christ comes. But it does to a certain extent even now as God gives us that wonderful privilege as his children. And then the final thing here is serve the Lord according to his grace. Paul ends the prayer. He wants us to serve the Lord prayerfully, out of godly character, joyfully in his power and for his glory. And then he says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, just notice how Paul effortlessly and without explanation couples the name of God with Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is equal to God. He is God. Um, and then the grace, the grace of God is the, the motive for serving God. If you haven't experienced his grace, you can't serve him for the right reason. Because when you realize God was gracious to me, the sinner, and if he hadn't sent his son to die for my sin, and he hadn't broken into my life with the good news of Christ, where would I be? And so you don't serve ever to gain acceptance with God. Oh, Lord, I'll do this for you if you'll accept. No, 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 no. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is God graciously saves us apart from anything in us, in spite of everything in us. And then, out of gratitude, we serve him. And... You know, that, that's just such a freeing thing to realize. I don't serve to earn acceptance. I serve because I'm accepted. And that's the motive. So my desire is that every person who comes to Flagstaff Christian Fellowship would be involved in serving the Lord in some capacity. We are all gifted differently. We all have different personalities, backgrounds, things the Lord will use. But I'm talking mainly about a mindset that results in action. A mindset. Namely, first of all, you say, you know what? I am a blood-bought slave of Jesus Christ. He bought me when I was enslaved to sin, and he freed me, and I belong to him. And then with that mindset, when you walk in the door, you don't come to church saying, well, I hope I can get something out of it today. That's the wrong mindset. You say, Lord, I'm your servant. Here I am. How can you use me today in serving you? That's the mindset we all should have. Let's bow together. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone, to deliver you from God's judgment, 
because of your sin. That is your number one need. And the good news is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Not good people, because it's not of works that we have done. It's by his grace, his undeserved favor, that he saves us. And so, I just urge you to come as a sinner to the cross of Christ and trust in what Jesus did there to pay the debt for your sin. And then and only then can you say, all right, Lord, now what would you have me to do? How would you have me to serve? If you know Christ, but maybe you've gotten sidetracked and consumed with a bunch of selfish stuff, again, just come back and say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm your servant. How do you want me to serve? Dear Lord, I pray you would work Paul's prayer here into each of our hearts that we all would serve you according to your grace and for your glory, that Jesus would be glorified in us, earthen vessels that we are here, that the treasure would shine through. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.